Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. One of these days, I'm going to do something about that. Well, it's not like you're not at home all the time right now. Yeah, well, you know, and every, but every time I send you like a little demo, you like, no, 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 no. So, But now, in this episode, it's happy 200 episodes to us. And although it feels a little odd to be talking about celebrating right now, we're looking forward to our future parties and celebrations, and there's going to be a hell of a need to raise a big old glass of beer pretty damn soon. What we figured we would do on this special 200th episode of the show is sit down and talk about the beers we've made for celebrations past, and what we would think we'd do for the future. But before we do that, please take a listen to these messages from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishing books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers, as well as titles that promote understanding and appreciation of American craft beer. Visit BrewersPublications.com to learn more. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a hub for homebrewers since 1978. Visit homebrewersassociation.org for recipes, brewing tips, and community. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malthouse Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. As mentioned in the open, this is between the main show and the brew files, the 200th episode of this podcast. Now, I don't know about Denny. Do you ever think we were going to get to 200 episodes? <laughs> no, I wasn't sure we'd get to two episodes. Well, here we are being stubborn as mules. Yeah, that's right. Now, since I'm a numbers guy, I've been tracking the runtime of the show. And I can tell you that before this episode, so as of the last main show, that would have been, what, 115? There are now 15,034 minutes of the show out there. And we want to apologize for that because people are going to listen to it and it's going to hurt them. Yeah, well, that's 250.6 hours, 10.4 straight days. We actually even have enough, if you consider, like, just... Your average waking day, if you were to listen to us, you could self-isolate for 15.7 waking days with us to keep you company and make sure that you're corona-free. 
<laughs> but it would melt your mind. It, hey, we've survived. Everybody else can too. <laughs> I think that's a matter of opinion, isn't it? Well, the other thing I thought was interesting was I also did some averages and I took a look and the main show actually averages 102 minutes. That's a little bit up from where we had originally planned the show to be, but well, here we are. <laughs> and each of the brew files I'm happy to report is actually clocking in at an average of 39 minutes. Okay, so let me see here now. And it takes me, for every finished hour of experimental brewing, it takes me any place from 6 to 10 hours of editing. So let's say 8 times the 250 hours of programming. Uh, I need a nap. But let's get on to the topic of the show. And that's all about doing celebration beers. So because this is the 200th episode of the show, kind of be like, hey, you know, let's talk about what we do to mark such an occasion. So I figured, let's start with you, Denny. You've done celebration beers in the past. What have you done? Yeah, well, I have, over the 22 years I've been brewing, uh, made five what I call century beers, you know, batch 100, 200, 300, 400, and 500. And we'll get into those in a minute. But, you know, a, a lot of them were really big beers for aging, like uh, like traditionally happens when you're making a celebration beer. But a lot of them weren't, you know, and... To me, the whole idea is that the beer has to have some sort of special meaning to you, not that it has to be uh, some high ABV beer that you're going to set aside for five years. Like I said, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, you, you look at Sierra Nevada's 40th anniversary beer. A lot of people criticized it for not being a big beer to set aside for aging, and they were kind of disappointed I felt like it was perfect because it was a beer that kind of like encapsulated their history in, in one beer. It, just to put it out there, I mean, it was basically a, a riff on the pale ale, right? Yeah, it was kind of, it was, you know, in a way, maybe a cross between the pale ale and celebration. Uh, but, you know, it, it, this was not like a 12% beer that you stashed in your cellar for 20 years before you drank. It was just a nice drinking beer. And, but it was significant to their story. And to me, that's, that's what it's all about. So here are my five, what I call, uh, centennial beers. And, uh, I'm gonna let Drew pick one to, uh, to actually discuss. So, uh, my 100th batch was a Russian Imperial Stout that uh, had a gravity of 1.100. And that one I actually managed to hang on to and age for five or six years. And, uh, it worked really well like that. Batch 200, I made a batch of Milo's Alt, uh, just my standard Americanized alt beer recipe. And that was significant to me because that was the very first all-grain beer that I made. So I thought, okay, for batch 200, that's great. Batch 300, I had my friends, the Stoner Brothers, out, and we made uh, our ninth batch of Old Stoner uh, barley wine for number 300. For number 400, I made a quadruple, right? Quadruple 400. Uh, that was a strong aging beer. Uh, unfortunately, it was so delicious when I finished making it that probably in the first six months, I drank at least half of it. And uh, by the time I'd let the rest of it age for a couple of years, I was kicking myself for drinking the first half. 
And then, of course, for batch number 500, I just made my good old rye IPA because that beer has a lot of meaning to me. Uh, you know, it, uh, it was brewed by Rogue for their 15th anniversary, and there are a lot of homebrewers out there who have made it and loved it through the years. So that beer has a, a real special place. So what one of those do you want to focus in on, Drew? Well, before we get to what we want to focus on, I want to just point out something that the audience can't see, but I can see in our show notes here. So between batches 100 and 200, you had you did that in three years, yeah. which means that you were brewing a batch of beer about, or actually you were brewing about one and a half batches of beer per week. Yep. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I was really going for it back there. Uh, you know, I... Uh, I never went more than two weeks without brewing, and uh, a lot of times, a lot more often. So, uh, and then things kind of slow down a bit. Uh, well, I was going to say two hundred, three hundred, about the same p- pace. Three hundred to four hundred, about the same pace, a little slower. And then between four hundred and five hundred, well, that's about seven years. <laughs> yeah, seven years instead of three or four. Right? <laughs> that's uh, that's because I met you. Sorry, I take up your time, buddy. <laughs> That's right. Well, I know that we've talked about the Milo Salt in the past, and of course we've we've talked about the the Rye IPA, and we've talked about Old Stoner as well. We talked about that on the Big Brewing Show. So right. why don't we talk about the uh, the Quad? Okay, let me. I have a whole stack of my notebooks here ready to go, and you're surprised. No, that's less surprising than me brewing a saison. Okay, so oh, the one significant thing about this batch was that uh, the uh, the sight tube on my kettle melted during the boil. So halfway through the boil, I had to transfer the beer to another kettle to finish the boil. Mm. <laughs> melted sight glass flavor. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what notebooks are good for, so you can remember all this stuff. So it looks like I did a 90-minute mash, a 90-minute boil, 15 pounds of best Pils malt, 2 pounds of best Munich, that's the dark Munich, half a pound of uh, Weirman Kara Munich, 2 pounds of D180 candy syrup, pound of turbinado sugar, which gave it a real nice flavor. Uh, let me see. There were two and a half ounces of Hallertau pellets at 60, an ounce of Strissel Spalt uh, at Flame Out. Uh, I used uh, Y-Yeast 3787. That's the West Mall yeast. And I had made uh, like just a pale ale with it a couple batches earlier, so I had some. I used two-tenths of an ounce of coriander. And uh, I, I used 40% distilled water for some reason to cut my water. I'm not, oh, I know why, because the darkness comes from the, the candy syrup. And other than that, it's a fairly light colored mash. So uh, I wanted to, to cut my water with distilled to uh, get the pH in line. Uh, I, back in those days, I was still adding some uh, water treatments to my sparge water. I don't do that anymore. Uh, but that was pretty much it. Uh, the original gravity was 1.104. I got 82% efficiency, which, you know, seems pretty astounding for a beer that big. But keep in mind that the efficiency was from the grain in the mash. And, uh, that was considerably smaller when you consider that, uh, two, two pounds of candy syrup and a pound of turbinado went into it to really give the gravity. So let me see here. I brewed this beer on May 28th, 
and it looks like I bottled it on August 12th. The final gravity was 1.016. The ABV, get this, 11.75%. Yow. <laughs> it was hefty. And, uh, you know, I, I thought it was pretty good after, like, you know, just a few weeks in the bottle. So I started hitting it. And uh, I went down to Sierra Nevada Beer Camp not too long after that and took some to my friend uh, Chris, who worked there and had invited me to come. And uh, he tried it and went, uh, yeah, this is going to be really good in a couple years. <laughs> so it's like, oh, yeah, that's what I needed, a, a voice of reason. So I set the rest of it aside, uh, not as much as I wanted. But after a couple years, it was really, really good. Well, now... Uh, one Strissel Spalt, a uh, nice traditional hop there, but man, I never see that anymore. Yeah, I don't see it very often. Uh, I run across it once in a while. If I go specifically looking for it online, or sometimes even my shop here in town might have it. But I suspect that the reason that uh, I had it around was that I had uh, bought it to use in a beer de garde a little before this. And so that was probably what was left, was just that two and a half ounces I threw in at the end. And then the little chef's kiss of coriander. Do you do you think that actually came through in the beer? It's hard to say. I kind of doubt it. But I was I was in a way modeling this a bit on uh, Rochefort, since Rochefort uses a little bit of coriander. I decided I would put a touch in. Uh, I can't say that I really noticed it, but I, I wasn't looking for it either. I was just enjoying the beer. So it's been nine years just about since you made that beer. Yeah. What would you do differently now? Well, let me look at this recipe again here. Uh, if I was going to make it to the same OG, I probably wouldn't change much, and I would just force myself to wait longer before I drank it. The way my beer proclivities are these days, I would probably make it maybe like about two-thirds of the gravity that I had originally made it, uh, which would make it ready to drink a little bit sooner and would mean that I could actually see and walk after I drank it. At that level of strength, uh, that definitely qualifies as a couch beer. Yeah, oh, definitely so, man. Uh, that's that's one of those beers where you, you do you sit on your couch and you take two or three hours sipping that beer. Yeah, it just becomes kind of a, a couch melter or a widow maker in a way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, like I said, it was it was a really good beer. Maybe I'll get around to making it again one of these days, uh, and maybe I won't. Well, there's always so many new things to play with. And speaking of in that same sort of vein of uh, couch beers, you know, because, again, I mean, even though you were saying that Sierra Nevada's, you know, 40th, for instance, was a, a sessionable beer, your quad's a big beer, the one we're about to talk to is also a big beer. I I've referred to it in the past as my mortgage killer. Because because it takes your house payments to finance all the ingredients? Well, no, the idea is it's supposed to be a death note on my death note. <laughs> if you don't get the joke, look up what mortgage means. So when I bought my house here in Pasadena, I which is the, the eponymous uh, Casa Verde that you always hear me talk about. Uh, so when I bought Casa Verde, I'm a little bit of a weirdo, and I decided that I wanted to have a beer that would outlast my mortgage. And so I was inspired by beers, kind of like how you see things like Thomas Hardy's and Lee's, you know, these strong ales that seem to last forever. And then, of course, there was also the Ballantine's Burton, which I know you've had, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And so for listeners who don't know, Ballantine's Burton Ale was a beer. I think the brewery did it twice in the course of the, the history of the brewery. And it was a, a big, strong Burton, strong ale, barrel aged and then bottled, I think, twice as well. And it was given away as a gift from the brewery. And so every once in a while, you'll still see bottles of this uh, pop up from like 1950. You know, uh, I had a bottle from 1934, something like that. Uh, in 2008, it was 74 years old. It was interesting. Well, and I think that's definitely the, the way to think about this, right? I, I'm not sure it's going to be a high-quality beer after this point in time, but it definitely be interesting. Yeah, after after 74 years, it was kind of like scotch and water. Yeah. And, well, and so I kind of wanted to take that lesson, right? Because a lot of times when people talk about, hey, you know, I want to make something that ages forever and a day, they'll look at making like a mead, for instance, because mead handles age very well. But I wanted to do a beer because, after all, brewer. And so I made this mortgage killer. And first things first I did was, of course, I made a mild because I needed the yeast. And I made a beer that started at original gravity of 1143. <laughs> wow. Uh-huh. 55 IBUs, uh, 17 SRM. The actual ABV on it, I was originally estimating that the ABV was going to be about 15. The actual ABV on it ended up being 16. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. This is why you make a yeast cake, people. Uh, the other thing, of course, was I also only had 55% efficiency on this beer. The grain bill was, well, I mean, it was about as simple as it can get. It was 30 pounds of Maris Otter. It was a half a pound of pale chocolate malt. And at that time, I was probably using the Simpsons pale chocolate. And then three and a half pounds of uh, brown sugar that I made into a syrup and added over the course of fermentation. Again, this was for five and a half gallons, 30 pounds of malt. Wow. That's uh, that's pretty intense, man. Yeah. And it turns out the thing is a, a malt bomb. I did hop it, obviously. You know, an ounce and a quarter of Magnum. Shocker. Ounce of uh, Challenger for 10 minutes. And then a one ounce of East Kent Goldings for zero minutes. Why? Because. And then the yeast I used in it was actually the White Labs 005 British Ale yeast. Because I wanted something that had some pretty good uh, alcohol tolerance to it, and then the mash was pretty straightforward. It was a single, uh, a single step mash, uh, 153 degrees for 90 minutes, and it was a thick mash because I needed the space. And so, I have this in a keg, and I've kept it cold this whole time. Uh, the beer is now almost 10 years old, and I tap it every year just to have a glass. And I may uh, brew a fresher version just to kind of keep it going because I don't know if the keg's going to last all 30 years of my mortgage. But again, this was uh, this was a project that I did because it was a, cel a celebration, celebrating the house. The story that I was telling with it was obviously the idea of like, well, one of us is going to die first, the mortgage or me. And I wanted a beer to go along with it. I mean, it was just, it's this was a hell of a project. It, it was a It was a real pain to get this thing to ferment, but I got it. <laughs> so what did you do for yeast on it um i used a yeast cake of wlp05 british ale and that was a yeast cake from a mild that i brewed oh great so that was a real healthy yeast oh yeah i know we usually talk about hey you know you don't need to use the whole yeast cake you know you use like a cup at most in this particular case i used all of it and it took off like a rocket and boy, am I glad it did. But then, of course, I kind of had to keep goosing it in order to kind of keep it moving. 
because the yeast was getting a little sluggish. Wow. So you didn't have to like repitch or anything like that? No, I got, uh, I got this thing uh, out with just the, the yeast that was in the, the keg, but I had to do rousing and I, I did do some uh, late oxygenation. So, you know, like I did the whole, yeah, you know, hit it with oxygen when it went into the fermenter, hit it with oxygen 12 hours later. And I think I hit it again at 24. And then, yeah, I did some rousing. I moved it into some warmer spaces and then finally I crashed it out and cleared it. But, you know, I mean, this was fun. I think one thing I would probably do in the future with this is I'd probably age some of this on wood. I'd take some of those long-aged bourbon barrel chips, that are bourbon barrel beans that I have, and throw those onto the beer and pick up some of those characters as well. Because I think a little wood and a little booze would also – not that this needs any more booze, but a little more uh, booze would actually kind of help hide any oxidative characters or at least mitigate some of them. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense, man. This was, I mean, again, this was a fun product. And again, to me, part of the reason that I wanted to do this big beer was because this was supposed to be a celebration thing that was going on and on and on. But to your point, they don't all have to be big, but they are kind of fun when they are just as as projects. Yeah, well, you know, it, it just really, really depends on how you feel when you're doing it. And as you can see from mine, part of mine were big and part of them just had like a special meaning. So whichever way you feel. Now, let's get into celebrating the show. Now, we obviously have not had a chance to brew anything to celebrate the show. We obviously don't have a chance to share with anybody the fact that we've made 200 episodes in the show. But I was kicking around ideas. So what what would we do for a 200th show beer? And the first thing that occurs to me, of course, is that number two, just like what you did with your fours and your quad. Uh-huh. And, and so for me, that was like, well, hey, you know, we could do like a double IPA. And we could do it with two malts, two hops, two yeasts. You know, to keep that number, uh, keep that two theme running through everything, um, just to sort of uh, play with, right? And I mean, obviously, for me, that would be like for me, it would be two malts would be Marisada and pale ale malt. Uh, I imagine that you'd be probably like pale ale malt and uh, a crystal. Yeah, I, you know, I would. Say so. I mean, it's got to have a, a big slug of sugar in it too for a double IPA. What would be your two hops? Oh, uh, Chinook and Cascade. Okay, yeah, I, f- I figured Cascade would be in there. I would almost, I would think what I would want to do is Centennial because just to get that super Cascade character. And then I was, I was debating do Newfangled? Or keep it classic. I mean, if I was going to do ca- classic, I would stick with Cascade in there, right? Do Centennial cas- Cascade. Um, or, you know, if I wanted to go Newfangled, although I guess it's not really Newfangled anymore, would be Centennial and Citra. Yeah, you know what? I'm not so sure about using Centennial for bittering. Uh, we did that in a couple batches of Old Stoner, and I can't tell you that it worked out well. Fair enough. And then for yeast, I think Denny's favorite would have to be in there. Oh, of course. 1450. And, and now here's, here's the other thing. I, I know we had great fun doing the Pilpazon. Right. And so one of the other thoughts that I had on this was, wouldn't it be fun if it was instead of just being a straight up double IPA, it was a Belgian double IPA and we give it a little Belgian influence. And so right. that could, that could come in via the yeast choice. Or we could just make a Belgian double. Could make a Belgian double, but I kind of thought that'd be a little boring. Yeah, that's right. 
<laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, if we if we were going to go down that route, I mean, obviously, if we're using fourteen fifty on the one hand, we would have to use you know a Belgian saison for the other, and make this make this a a saison IP, double IPA. Yeah, if, if we were trying to encapsulate you know the the notes of the show, or at least of us, right? You know, and as you can see here from the script, I, I kind of went a different direction. I, again, went for the the meaning, right? And uh, so I thought about beers that we've brewed together, and the only two I could think of were the uh, Clam Chowder, Cezanne, and the uh, Pilpazan. And I, I think that once is enough for the Clam Chowder Cezanne. <laughs> don't you <laughs> i consider it a successful experiment and not necessarily a beer that i want to make again well you know if i was going to do the clam chowder saison again i mean yeah i'd probably skip out on the clams just because i think the most they added was some brininess and otherwise the main thing they added for most people was you did what but we'd have to put them in if we're doing the clam chowder saison you know although we could we could just do it so that it was a salt factor because otherwise, the beer itself was actually really nice with the, you know, sort of the mashed potatoes adding uh, a sort of a fluffiness, a silkiness, and then the thyme and the bay coming through as well, adding nice herbal notes. The beer was better than most people are thinking. I, I mean, to me, it wouldn't be the same beer if we didn't put the clam juice in it, you know, which is why I decided if for me, it would be like maybe a slightly bigged up version of the Pilpazon, because that was a, a stunningly good beer. And uh, number one, I'm jonesing to brew it again. And number two, I, I think maybe if we like kicked it up into the, the 1080, 1085 range, that there could be some really, really interesting things happening there. I think so. And, th and that beer was a lot better than it had any right to be. <laughs> Oh, ye of little faith, man. I knew it was going to be good. Oh, no, it not, it's not a matter of faith. It was just a matter of that was totally like the whole thing of sticking your finger in your mouth and sticking it up in the in the air to figure out which way the wind's going. <laughs> it, for, for me, at least, it wasn't quite that off the wall. At least I had some something in my mind for a direction for it. And uh, I guess we did totally luck out that it actually turned out kind of like what I had in mind. Or... Did we just get skillful? I don't know. You know what? Tony keeps saying, oh, guys, it's because you guys are so skilled and you know exactly what to do. And it's like, dude, you got one of the good ones. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, like I was saying on the last episode of the uh, of the main show, uh, people think that we're great brewers because they don't know about all our failures because we don't talk about those. I think we've gotten better about that. We talk more about our failures. It's, it's yeah, oh important yeah. to. Oh, yeah. We do. We do. Uh, I mean, being right all the time is a young man's game. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, when you get to my age, you don't care. And I think the other thing that we also have to talk about is I think there's going to be, or I should say, let me back that up. I, I hope there's going to be a good reason for us to all celebrate uh, in short order, a.k.a. the end of the pandemic, the end of social distancing, the end of... Wait, I can't go to the brewery. Um, and I was thinking around, you know, what uh, what would I want to do? Like if I was going to try and make something special uh, for that. And the only thing I keep coming back to is the idea of a crown. If you don't know uh, the coronavirus, the corona in there means crown. And so given my proclivities in general, that of course would make me think in terms of Belgians. And 
what I'd want is I'd want something that was, you know, spicy and fun and also light. And also something with some good kick as, you know, all proper celebration things are. And given that it's also, it would be a celebration, something that you'd want to toast, that makes me think of my, you know, my champagne beers, my brute beers. And if you go back and you listen, I don't know how many episodes ago in, in the brew files, I talked with Kent Fletcher about how to make a champagne beer and how to do method champenoise. And so I would do that sort of idea, but with appropriate sort of spices that have the, the right sort of image attach them. So again, riffing on the idea of a crown, I was thinking, you know, things along the lines of the star anise, and then pairing that up with uh, spices and herbs that have uh, royal connotations to them. So that includes like uh, ginger and black pepper, uh, cinnamon, uh, sumac. And then the last one is hyssop, uh, which is a, um, an herb found all around the Mediterranean, but it also has a traditional sort of herbal medicinal use as an anti-cough and uh, an expectorant, which also <laughs> plays in appropriately. So a little double meaning there uh, with the hyssop. Uh, and the recipe itself is pretty straightforward. The, the, you know, it's 13 pounds of Pilsner, a quarter pound each of Carahel and Aromatic, and two pounds of sugar. And it's basically like a, a gussied up triple or golden strong with minimal amounts of hops. So just like a third of an ounce of Magnum and then fermented with 3787, a lot of 3087 in order to make sure I have a lot of healthy yeast going into the bottling and then go listen to the brute show to figure out how you do method champenoise in a beer. And if I were planning to do something really, you know, kind of big and fun for the end of the pandemic, that's kind of where my brain takes me. Yeah. You know that I can visualize that beer. That sounds pretty good. You know, plus for your yeast, you could just do a a Belgian pale ale first and, you know, get two beers for the price of one kind of. Yeah, and the, the, that would be exactly the sort of thing I would do. I, 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 your your spices seem too much to me, but you know, I would have to, you know, I would pick like maybe like one or two of those. But on the other hand, it all depends on how you do it. Well, the other cute thing in there is that there's a little bit with the, that blend. There's a little bit of something Szechuan and you know, sort of five slice powdery, but also something uh, Zatar like. So both of those are playing into different spice blends. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I see that. I, I, I In my head, I can't get them to play nicely. <laughs> That's my job. And what about you, sir? Uh, you know, I, I really have no idea. Uh, for me, it would be just like a return to normal beer. It would just something that I would normally brew that I could drink as soon as it was done fermenting and ready to go. Uh, because to me, that's, that's normal. Uh, I, I don't want to be reminded of it anymore. Well, there you go. Now I think that leaves the question to the listeners, which way would you go? What would you do? And what sort of anniversary beers have you done or celebration beers? I should say, what sort of celebration beers have you done? Uh, Denny, before we leave this topic, any other thoughts on celebration beers? No, I, I would say, before you start thinking about doing one, think about which of these two directions we've talked about you really want to go. Whether it's a big beer that you age, whether it's a beer that has meaning to you, or, you know, there's no reason it couldn't be both. So I, I guess my advice, as it always is when I talk about recipe design, is to sit down and think it through first, as opposed to just going wild throwing stuff together like drew did there 
<laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not saying that you didn't think it through. Uh, but you know, but again, you know, take your time. We got time to deal with this. So make a beer. Yes, absolutely. Keep, a, keep making beer, people. Keep your mind sane and keep your larders full. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of what we think a celebratory beer should be. Tell a story, make it personal, but most importantly, have some fun and brew. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's called Not One More Vet, an organization that supports veterinarians who commit suicide way, way more often than they should because of the the stress of taking care of our little furry buddies. So uh, throw us a couple bucks, we'll pass it along to them. And until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there for at least another hundred episodes. (laughs) God, no. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.